Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Good evening. The opinions and statements voiced by our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of this network. Enjoy the shows. You are listening to WBHM, digital broadcasting, the best in paranormal talk only on Paranormal Experience Radio. Broadcasting live, live, live out of Birmingham, Alabama. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile, found sometime last week, has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. Now historic films made in the spring of 1948 and just released show Enoetok preparing for heavily guarded and still largely secret tests of new atomic weapons. The test's purpose is to measure atomic effects on thousands of different materials, 30,000 tons of them, not as at Bikini to prove military effectiveness. San Francisco police say that nine persons have been arrested in a narcotics raid on the headquarters of the Grateful Dead, a widely popular singing group. Two members of the group, Rod McKernan and Robert Weir, and their business manager, Danny Rifkin, have been booked on suspicion of possessing narcotics. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. Neil Armstrong reporting the roll and pitch program, which puts Apollo 11 on a proper heading. I'm going to step off the limb now. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Well, strange lights are causing a viral buzz on YouTube. Could we have caught extraterrestrial activity on a recent newscast? Brandon Arroyo investigates. As the newscast ended, the controversy began back on September 26th. What is that light shining in the back of the dark night sky? With coverage reaching all the way back to 1948, for over 70 years, Fate magazine has brought you reports of the strange and unknown, all of them true. Now, Fate Magazine Radio is carrying on that tradition of setting the standard in Paranormal Talk Radio as we report and discuss some of the most mysterious and perplexing phenomena imaginable in this strange world of ours. Now, here is your host of Fate Magazine Radio, Kat Hobson. Good evening. Welcome to 
Fate Mag Radio, the online voice of Fate Magazine. I am so excited about our guest tonight. He actually wrote the first book, or he published the first book on exopolitics, and the second. He is someone who has been involved in government for quite some time. In fact, his PhD is in government. He is a crisis mitigator, for lack of a better word, for a conflict suppressor. He is someone who is trained to do those things. He has done them for our government for quite some time. He is an author of several books, and he's also very involved in the space program, the secret space program as far as speaking with whistleblowers and writing about it. So I think it's going to be a great conversation. If you would, just, um, I am excited to welcome Dr. Michael Sala. I first ran into him at Contact in the Desert two years ago. I was not familiar with the secret space program at that time. And I walked into a lecture and the speaker was someone who had been involved in that. His name is Corey Good, and he catches a lot of flack because people just don't want to open up and be realistic about the fact that this is something that really happened. It's hard to, it's hard to understand. It's hard to contemplate, and you don't want to think that something like that would be going on and you wouldn't be aware of it. But you know what? Your government is not always your friend. And if they they don't trust the citizenry to not overreact or panic, I still say that War of the Worlds with Orson Welles was a trial run for disclosure. And humanity failed miserably. I don't blame them. I wouldn't tell us about it anymore either after that. But Dr. Sala, welcome. I would like to just let people have an idea about how you got involved with knowledge of something of this nature. I know that you had worked for the government. You're very, you're very well renowned for your, your educational background and your conflict resolution. I think it's pretty astounding given all the conflict that's been around the world since I'm sure you have been a professional. Your work is outstanding. You're very well known. Your PhD is in government from the University of Queensland. And you wrote four books or wrote and edited four books focusing on international politics, right? That's right. Yes. Um, I I basically uh, graduated with my PhD in uh, 1993 and then got my first uh, academic appointment at the uh, Australian National University, and um, my specialty was international conflict resolution, and that was something I continued to work on uh, right up until 2001. And uh, at that at that time, I watched the Disclosure Project press conference that Dr. Stephen Greer had organised, uh, where he had, uh, I think it was 21 witnesses talking about uh, UFOs and a cover-up, 
and it just seamlessly fit into the research I was doing because I, I was I actually was studying international conflict, and so he provided a, a kind of deeper level of analysis of what is going on that perpetuates international conflict. It's like, uh, you know, all of this uh, research and all of the activities concerning UFOs that were going on around the planet. So um, I actually uh, introduced it into the course uh, that I was uh, teaching at the time, which was, uh, it was a course called, a graduate course called Theories of Conflict, Violence and War. So I actually talked about that in 2001 in the summer. And uh, that has been something I have continued to do. Unfortunately, uh, academia was not a good fit. They did not like this topic. Uh, and so I had to uh, – eventually I was forced to leave academia um, and become an independent researcher. And I have been doing that um, up until this day and, and looking more and more at this whole phenomenon of – um, UFOs, secret space programs, cover-up of extraterrestrial life, and it, and it truly is a fascinating field. And um, I'm very happy to kind of like talk about the different aspects of it. Something that I found interesting, and I do understand that the world of academia is not comfortable at all with this. I know that several people had waited until they gained tenure before they even wrote their books. <laughs> so I have seen that happen and there were still repercussions, but nothing, you know, they just kind of rolled with it from that point. So I know that had to be difficult. When you started to become aware of this, did, did it have anything to do with your government work when you started hearing about a space program? Or was it just something that you happened across? Well, it was a natural evolution. I, I, you know, my specialty was international conflict and trying to understand what, you know, what is it that drives international conflict? What is it that makes it so difficult to resolve? Why is it that so many times academics and professionals resolve an international conflict and then it just kind of like breaks? breaks out again or the, the solution or the negotiations fall apart. And so as I put two and two together, I, I realized it was like, um, you know, like the best analogy I could come up with was it was like being a fireman and you're, you're trained to put out fires, but at a certain time you realize that there's this arsonist out there that is lighting these fires. And so, you know, you can keep on putting them out, but th that arsonist is going to keep lighting them. So you then change your career or you change your focus. And rather than putting out fires, you becoming an investigator. You try and find out, well, who is this arsonist? Why are they doing this? And so that's, that's the analogy in terms of my research focus shifting from putting out or resolving international conflicts to understanding, well, what's driving them? You know, who are the, who are the driving forces behind it? And, and it absolutely has everything to do with secret space programs and cover-ups of UFOs and extraterrestrial life. That is an interesting tie-in. The average person would not anticipate that any type of alien involvement would 
have something to do with earthbound politics and crises. Well, that's right. Uh, people don't realize the connection in terms of like, you know, why, why um, international conflicts so persistent and, and why might that be tied into this whole issue of uh, UFOs and an extraterrestrial cover-up. And um, as I have dived into this and done more research, I, I realized that early on, um, a decision was made uh, to to cover this up, um, to cover it up from from Congress, uh, to cover it up from the general media uh, and the general public, while at the same time putting a lot of resources into black projects, trying to understand what is going on and reverse engineering any te technologies that were recovered, and so you know the big. Uh, question is well how do you raise the money for that and it's like well if, if you're not going to reveal this to congress and to the general public uh, which typically allocates money for research projects then how are you going to get the money and so this is where it ties in international conflict because international conflict provides an ideal cover for generating enormous sums of money that kind of gets siphoned off to all of these different aspects of these conflicts and and so people lose track of where the money is going uh, but a lot of it ends up in these black projects that are basically trying to uh, reverse engineer uh, these recovered technologies and to develop uh, anti-gravity uh, vehicles, or some people call them alien reproduction vehicles, but but essentially this is uh, you know the the big tie-in that uh, you know the, the question is not do are UFOs real? You know the, the real question is you know what have governments and militaries been doing um, ever since the UFO phenomenon began? Is it actual fact, to your knowledge, that the crash in 1947 was the first alien craft that there was an alien craft gotten? I believe there's really no doubt that the, that was the first piece of equipment that we were able to attempt reverse engineering. And did well, other actually, countries also get that information? Uh, that's uh, fascinating, the, the, the history of the UFO crashes. Uh, the, the first crash that really had significance was uh, th there, were, there were two incidents. One was in uh, Cape Girardeau in Missouri in, mm -hmm. in 1941, and some uh, alien technology and even a body was recovered and, and taken to, to the U.S. Congress and to uh, Wright Field in uh, Ohio. And also there was another incident um, in Los Angeles in February of uh, 1942. Um, and again, craft was recovered uh, and, and taken to Wright Field for study and analysis. Uh, and so they were the first two incidents. And because of those incidents, there was an organization that was set up um, called the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit, and it absolutely existed. I mean, this has been proven uh, through FOIA uh, requests and responses by the U.S. Army and the Air Force that the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit was created, and um, you know, based on available documentation, a lot of it that has been leaked, um, we trace the origins of the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit to um, 
early 1942, immediately after the Los Angeles incident. So in terms of, you know, what is the most important or, you know, what was it that basically set things on off for the United States? It was the um, 1942 Los Angeles incident uh, where the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit was set up under the leadership of General Douglas MacArthur. And really? from that time on, the U.S. began to acquire as much intelligence on UFOs from around the world as it could. And it was after the Second World War that the U.S. military, and in particular the Army Air Force, that then uh, became the uh, United States Air Force in September 1947, uh, began serious studies and reverse engineering programs of these recovered craft. And all of that got going um, in 1947, in terms of like the uh, setting up the infrastructure for uh, the the development, the study and the reverse engineering of these recovered craft from around the world. It's just astounding. How do they maintain any kind of plausible deniability when it is a program that is well-known? Those crashes were well-known. I spoke with a woman whose father was the minister, Missouri case who went to the crash site. So there were a lot of people who were aware of these things that were happening in the general public, not just military people and researchers. How did they maintain at any level of deniable plausibility with that? Well, it was a very different time. I mean, we're, we're talking about the era just after the Second World War. Uh, we are talking about a time when the uh, U.S. Uh, public uh, believed in the whatever the public authorities or official uh, kind of authorities, whether we're talking uh, the military, we're talking government, or we're talking FBI, whatever they had to say, yeah, this was believed to be the unvarnished truth. And so, if the authorities uh, said something, uh, you know, that was officially the truth. And so, right. it meant that people who talked about uh, UFOs uh, talked about meeting extraterrestrials or talked about crash retrievals. Whenever the public authorities had anything to say to the contrary, that was believed. So, you know, the, the one of the, the the most famous incident was the Roswell incident in 1947, where you actually had uh, the uh, initial press releases going up by the Army Air Force. Uh, from Roswell, basically saying that a flying saucer had crashed in Roswell. It made worldwide news. And then by the end of the day, uh, you, you had the, uh, the, uh, one of the Army Air Force generals basically going on the public record saying, well, uh, it wasn't a, a flying saucer after all. It was, in fact, just a, um, a top-secret flying so – a top-secret uh, balloon uh, project, and so the the public believed it because this was the Army Air Force uh, telling us that this was what was really going on. There wasn't any serious questioning of what the Air Force had to say. Now, you know, with hindsight today, I mean, people would would, would question the logic of that and say, well, how could seasoned uh, Air Force investigators uh, who who were who were trained to understand the differences between all of these different types of aircraft, confuse uh, a flying saucer for a crashed balloon. 
but in those days, uh, you know, it was accepted that, oh, okay, because the Air Force general said it, then that must be the truth. And so people uncritically accepted it, as did the general media. Fascinating. We have to take our first break. So this is just great information. We will be right back. Y'all come back to you. You're listening to WBHM, digital broadcasting, the best in paranormal talk only on Paranormal Experience Radio. Broadcasting live, live, live out of Birmingham, Alabama. Oh, come on. I'm Southern, but... Um, nope. That'll do. Hello, I am Kat Hobson, host of Paranormal Experience here on WBHN Digital Broadcasting out of Birmingham, Alabama. I enjoy having guests from all areas of the paranormal, from ghosts to ufology to cryptids and beyond. You'll find some of the best researchers in their fields bringing you some great information. Join me on Wednesday nights from 8 to 10 p. Eastern here on WBHM Digital Broadcasting. To the believer, the evidence is overwhelming. To the skeptic, there will never be enough. Hello, everyone. Join Kevin and Jennifer Malik, the host of Paraversal Universe, every Friday here on WBHM Digital Broadcasting. Also heard on WCET-FM and The Rift. Log on or tune in as they check out the mysteries found within the eight categories of the unknown and unexplained, including ghosts and haunted places, aliens and UFOs, theology and mythology, cryptids and monsters, urban legends and folklore, conspiracies, metaphysics, and forbidden archaeology. Listen as Kevin and Jennifer interview the top minds in their respective fields as they share theories and information regarding these unsolved mysteries. For future show and archive information, one can find Paraversal Universe on Facebook, Twitter, and MeWe under various Paraversal Universe headings. So, for excellent talk radio about the unknown and unexplained, check out Paraversal Universe, where all paranormal perspectives apply. Brought to you by the Northern Wisconsin Paranormal Society, LTV, and produced by WBHMDB.com. Thank you for listening to WBHM Digital Broadcasting out of Birmingham, Alabama. The time is 23 minutes after the hour. Welcome back to Fate Mag Radio. I am Kat Hobson, your host, and I am joined this evening by... A really special and wonderful guest. I hope that you're enjoying this as much as I am already, Dr. Michael Sala. And we were discussing the crashes and how people in the era of Missouri and L.A. and Roswell were were still willing to believe their government, even though other people had seen what was there when the government came up and said, Oh no, you know what? We were so mistaken. That was not a flying saucer. That was crinkly foil paper. That was a balloon. 
they 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 believed them or accepted it and can you see that happening now well i think uh, now people are much more uh, suspicious about government motivations they understand that uh, governments have agendas and they do lie uh, we, we you know we know from uh, Watergate I mean I think uh, the, the Watergate hearings um, and you know the, the Watergate incident was uh, was a time when the American public really was shocked to find out you know just just how much governments uh, can lie can cover things up. And so ever since Watergate, I think the American public has become much more sophisticated. But but even today, uh, you know, people are really, you know, beginning to question, well, you know, how how far does this UFO cover-up go? And, you know, what's what's been happening? Who was involved? But for me, you know, the important question is, uh, tracing how the different government uh, and military departments responded to this, because even though even though on the one hand uh, things haven't changed much, you know, if you look at what critics are saying, things haven't changed. I mean, now you have critics saying that, well, you know, the UFO phenomenon is, doesn't exist because there's no reliable evidence proving that there's anything to it. You know, that's the same argument that was made back in the 40s and 50s. There were critics back then saying the same thing. You know, the military was saying the same thing. But what what has changed is that uh, 70, more than 70 years has elapsed. Um, and what we know, based on leaked documents, is that uh, the US military did set up uh, reverse engineering programs. They did set up top-secret uh, think tanks to look at all of this technology that had been recovered and come up with a strategic plan for uh, researching, developing it, and then eventually deploying it in terms of a secret space program. And so we see the different steps starting from from the mid-1940s when you had um, uh, a group set up uh, under the Army Air Force by the, the commanding general, uh, general Hap Arnold, who was a five-star general, he actually set up the first UFO uh, study group, and uh, that involved uh, one of his chief scientific advisor was uh, uh, Dr. Theodore von Kármán, and he set up something called the Scientific Advisory Group, um, and later that became the Scientific Advisory Board, and that basically advised the Army Air Force on the recovered flying saucer craft and gave basically came up with a blueprint, uh, a kind of multi-decade blueprint on how the Army Air Force and later the Air Force itself could study, reverse engineer and develop secret spacecraft that were reverse engineered from these recovered technologies. And so you actually have a kind of like a history starting from the 40s under General Arnold uh, and Theodore von Kármán to the the development of these flying saucer craft that the Air Force began to deploy in the um, 1960s and the 70s. 
And um, and so then you actually have squadrons of these things being deployed in the late 70s and the early 80s. And, and by now, you actually have uh, multiple squadrons of different configurations of anti-gravity vehicles, whether they're flying triangles, whether they're flying saucers or even... Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Even flying rectangles. Uh, these are all reverse engineered craft that can be traced to that to those initial study groups that were convened by General Hap Arnold uh, with uh, Dr. Theodore von Kármán back in the mid-1940s under the Scientific Advisory Board. And so the documentation is available, and so you can kind of see how all this unfolded. That really is fascinating because you don't consider that for everything, especially government-oriented, there has to be paperwork. And I know that with FOIA and everything, people can get a lot, but... Is there still a lot of it that's just in general public files? Well, what's been very helpful for me in my research are the majestic documents. Uh, these yes. are documents. I, I, I don't know if you've covered those in past shows, uh, but they Only are. Only with Stanton. Very... Okay. Well, was Stanton Friedman? Uh, he was uh, a really. Uh, he he basically did a lot of research, and he did a a book on the majestic documents. And so, mm -hmm. as, as you well know, he said some of these documents, like the Eisenhower briefing document, was genuine. And other documents he didn't agree with. Uh, I my, my position is, is based on the research of Dr. Robert Wood, who has done the most research on the majestic documents. And, uh, you know, he's come up with um, a, a classification guide for these in terms of you know, uh, how credible these documents are. But based on his analysis, uh, I use uh, his recommendations in terms of which, uh, which of these majestic documents are the most rel reliable for helping us understand uh, the, the real history behind the scenes of these uh, programs that were set up uh, by the U.S. government. And uh, the majestic documents, when you combine them with FOIA documents that have been released that give us uh, a lot of information confirming some of the things. For example, uh, the Majestic documents talk about the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit, um, and yet uh, you know, it was the FOIA documents that actually confirmed that the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit did exist. 
So, so that's a good example of how you actually have official documentation uh, confirming something that leaked documents that haven't been officially accepted as genuine uh, to be accurate. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the majestic documents, I believe, are a very rich source of documentation that helps us understand this secret history behind the UFO phenomenon and how these uh, reverse engineering programs were set up very early on by the Army Air Force um, and the Air Force and the Navy, for that matter, and that uh, in addition to these uh, documents, whether we're talking leaked or whether we're talking FOIA documents, we also have whistleblowers. We talk about people uh, who have worked in these programs who have come forward to reveal different aspects. So that's another important source of information that I've used a lot in my research. Well, especially with your more recent as well. We have a question for you in chat. I know that when we talked about the Missouri and the LA crashes, you said where they, you know, what they did with the, the bodies and the vehicles. Sherry said she didn't hear you cover what they did with the vehicles and bodies from Roswell. Do you believe that alien cover-ups happened there too? Oh, definitely, yes. Uh, okay. Yes. Yes, the, the Roswell incident was a very important one because that seemed to be the catalyst for the creation of a, uh, a, a national security system to deal with the entire phenomenon. Uh, so there was, there was the creation of the Majestic 12 Special Studies Group that had direct oversight in terms of coordinating a response by the national security system uh, to the UFO phenomenon, um, and and so the uh, the Roswell cry or the Roswell incident was very important for that in terms of like uh, how did the U.S. government coordinate its response uh, to this phenomenon? And what we know from the Roswell craft is uh, incident was that the Army Air Force was given primary responsibility for studying uh, the, the craft that had been retrieved and that the, the craft were taken uh, to the Army Air Force's premier research facility for the study of foreign technology, which was Wright Field. Um, and after 19, uh, September 1947, uh, when the Air Force was created, uh, Wright Field was renamed Wright-Patterson Air Force Base because there was you know, uh, an amalgamation of, you know, different research facilities. But that's that's where the uh, the Roswell craft was first taken um, in 1947. And then in the, in the mid-1950s, uh, you had the creation of Area 51, uh, which was a more secure facility. And so the, a lot of the Roswell craft and other... Uh, debris that had been recovered from uh, Germany, Nazi Germany in particular, um, the the flying saucer programs uh, that the Nazis uh, had worked on, all of that was uh, taken to Wrightfield under a program called Operation Lusty, uh, and, and that was the uh, recovery of all Nazi Germany's kind of like uh, uh, aerospace technologies and and bringing them to the United States. For, for study. So Wrightfield was from has has been since the 1940s the the primary place for the study of recovered flying saucers, whether we're talking extraterrestrial or whether we're talking Nazi 
uh, prototypes. First at Wright Field, and then from the mid-1950s, uh, these craft were relocated to Area 51, which was a more secure facility, um, and uh, it, that has continued uh, to be the way in which uh, the, the system has conducted its study and reverse engineering uh, programs. Do you think? Do you think that there's any way that the government could come out and say, you know what? We just had the public interest at heart. We really didn't want to create, you know, a panic. And we do have this stuff. We have been working on it. The things that you see, the the triangles, the two-story rectangles, the whatever, is actually still just us trying to reverse engineer these things. By the way, we have these guys that go away for 20 years and come back 10 minutes before they left, but think nothing of that. I, I mean, it's just so unbelievable to think that they are ever going to be able to disclose without there being a just a hideous flashback on them. Well, uh, the, the, the kind of, I try and I try and kind of keep it as simple as possible for people to understand the complexity of what has been going on. Um, the, the 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 same reasons that led to this all being covered up back in the forties uh, continue today. I mean, we have the same kind of like uh, justifications and rationale for keeping this secret. But what has changed? is that uh, uh, what the U.S. military uh, wants to do in terms of uh, taking control of this phenomenon. Uh, What I have been kind of like observing is that in the mid-1990s, there was a a kind of uh, a shift as far as the U.S. military was concerned that up until up until that time, the U.S. military was pretty much con- content with the secrecy system. It, it worked for them, but in the 1970s, there was incidents that happened, which led to the U.S. military uh, losing trust in the secrecy system and wanting to overturn it. And so that's when you had hundreds of military whistleblowers being allowed to come forward. So it was not accidental that you actually had Stephen Greer experiencing a lot of support for the disclosure project because the U.S. military was saying, we are not happy with the way in which the secrecy system has evolved. We have been largely cut out of the loop. The U.S. military now does not have access to some of these uh, most secretive programs that are being developed in these uh, corporate laboratories on military facilities. And we, the military, the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, the Defence Intelligence Agency, uh, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, the Office of Naval Intelligence, where we have been cut out of the loop. We are not happy with this. And so we are going to basically encourage whistleblowers to come forward to reveal what's going on because the system needs to change. So that is why you have had, since the kind of like mid to late 1990s, hundreds of military whistleblowers 
that have been allowed to come forward and talk about this because the military are not happy. And so this is why uh, the system has now been challenged. So the secrecy system uh, is now on the verge of collapse because you have had so many hundreds of whistleblowers come forward and talk about this. Uh, you know, you you have people uh, like Corey Gould or Emery Smith and, uh, and and many Pete Peterson, uh, many others who have been talking about uh, various aspects of these uh, secret space programs and these reverse engineering programs, and and they have been talking about this, and and this is because the the military uh, wants this information to come out because they want to. Uh, make this something that becomes part of the kind of so-called white world of officially sanctioned programs that are funded through the U.S. Congress as opposed to black world projects that are funded off the books by these illicit uh, funding mechanisms that have been set up by the CIA to to kind of keep all this uh, sequestered away from the U.S. public. I'm curious because what I would consider old school UFOlogists are not very pleased with these people coming forward, particularly the the secret space program. I have heard just as many people who are long-term, almost lifetime researchers and documenters and people who speak very publicly at events and such, they're got books and lots of research and lots of time involved in the field who are very almost mocking of whistleblowers who are coming forth now. And yet these are the people that have been screaming the word disclosure for a decade or more. So I I don't know what to make of the fact that we have to go to break. <laughs> but we will be right back because I, I would like to get your take on that because these are these are people that have should have a vested interest in this coming forth. So we will be right back in just a couple of minutes. Y'all come back to you. You're listening to WBHM Digital Broadcasting, the best in paranormal talk, only on Paranormal Experience Radio, broadcasting live out of Birmingham, Alabama. Come on, I'm Southern, but... Um, nope. That'll do. Hello, I am Kat Hobson, host of Paranormal Experience here on WBHN Digital Broadcasting out of Birmingham, Alabama. I enjoy having guests from all areas of the paranormal, from ghosts to ufology to cryptids and Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Beyond, you'll find some of the best researchers in their fields bringing you some great information. Join me on Wednesday nights from 8 to 10 p. Eastern here on WBHM Digital Broadcasting. Since 1948, Fate Magazine has brought you reports of the strange and unknown, all of them true. Fate Radio is carrying on that tradition, bringing you the unusual, macabre, strange, and bizarre. Join host Cat Hops Sunday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on WBHM Digital Broadcasting. Listening to WBHM Digital Broadcasting, the best in paranormal talk, only on Paranormal Experienced Radio, broadcasting live out of Birmingham, Alabama. Welcome back to Fate Mag Radio. This is Kat Hobson, your host, host with my guest, Doctor. <coughs> excuse me, Doctor Michael Sala. I needed to get that water myself. So I was just curious. We were talking about all the people that basically put together this disclosure project, right? Who have been asking for this. And now we have have whistleblowers coming out like, you know, like Corey and Pete and Emery who are saying this is what has been going on. This is, you know, we participated in this. And one thing that I have found is that, A, as individuals, their stories do not change. And I feel that were they not being honest, that would be, that would be something you would see. And I, I just am curious as to why you think people that, so adamantly want the truth are slamming people who are trying to tell it. Yes, this has been a, a really divisive issue within the UFO community. Um, and that was something that I came across pretty early on when I got involved in the UFO community back in uh, 2001, was that you know, there is a really clear divide uh, between those that want to focus on documentation and verifiable facts as opposed to those that want to focus on testimony of whistleblowers who have first-hand experience of these classified projects. And what typically happens is that uh, you, you have those that focus on documentation or on kind of like empirical evidence demanding those who say that they have first-hand experience in some of these classified projects for proof. Like, for you know, a good example is Bob Lazar, who came forward in uh, 1989, and, and you know, um, and uh, there were a number of prominent UFO researchers, and probably a good example is Stan Friedman, 
um, who uh, I think is an excellent researcher, uh, but as far as Bob Lazar was concerned, Stanton Friedman said, well, uh, we, we have no way of proving he is telling the truth, uh, that uh, when you do any kind of uh, document search, there's, there's nothing there verifying uh, the veracity of, of what he says. But on the other hand, uh, you had people like George Knapp uh, looking very closely at Bob Lazar and finding evidence that uh, uh, records were actually being removed. Uh, for example, that Bob Lazar's uh, uh, employment at uh, Los Alamos National Laboratory, uh, that you know, initially uh, Los Alamos said, well, that we have no records of him working here. But then uh, uh, George Knapp was able to find a phone book having... Uh, which which listed Bob Lazar as having worked there. And and so you have this kind of debate over whistleblowers, uh, people who have worked, who claim to have worked in these programs, over whether or not uh, they should be believed. Um, and people demand documentation to prove the veracity of what they say. But in a way, uh, what, you know, we've kind of like... You, you kind of put the cart before the horse because when you demand evidence to prove the eyewitness testimony of someone, you, you have put the cart before the uh, horse because the thing is eyewitness testimony is court admissible evidence. It is evidence. Absolutely. You don't have it is to provide – exactly. You don't have to provide evidence to prove eyewitness testimony because eyewitness testimony – is evidence that is fully admissible in a court of law. What you have to do is actually provide the opposite, which is provide evidence that these people are telling a lie. That's what needs to be done. And you know, and that would be my criticism of a lot of UFO researchers today who say, well, you know, Corey Good or Pete Peterson or Emery Smith or Bob Lazar or you know, Mark, you know, many, many whistleblowers, they would say, well, you know, where's the evidence proving they're telling the truth? And I would say, well, no, they're, they're, they are providing eyewitness testimony. You have to provide evidence that they're telling a lie, and they don't well, have evidence. Well, you know, it actually, I, had, I was curious about that. I mean, I know a lot of these re researchers and respect them greatly. I think their work is brilliant. Innocent until proven guilty. If you have multiple sources coming forth with the exact same stories, exact same experiences, the, the work guidelines are the same, you kind of have to take that seriously. I get frustrated because I know that. I'm a paralegal. <laughs> you know, I know what's admissible and what's not. You have to figure that, like Bob Lazar's instance, there was a lot to be gained by making him appear to be illegitimate. You know, it's just um, it's just a bizarre set of circumstances. You know, here you've been asking for this information for decades. There's someone telling you this information and you're attacking them, literally being disrespectful. So I have a really difficult time with that. Yeah, I'm Switzerland on this. This is not my serious field of study, although it is fast becoming that. I think that it is important to not shoot the messenger just because your government is lying to you doesn't mean that you have to take out the person that is trying to tell you what really is happening. Would you agree? That does happen. 
Unfortunately, that does happen, that uh, people do shoot the messenger, and, and they do it on this mistaken assumption that an eyewitness to these classified programs, you know, let's take someone or like Emery Smith. participant. right, yes. Let's take someone like Emery Smith, who, who has documents showing that he did work for the U.S. Air Force and that he was stationed uh, out at Kirtland Air Force Base, that he was a, uh, he did work as a, uh, a, a medical first assistant, which is involved in kind of like surgical operations. So, you know, that directly supports his testimony that he was involved in the dissection of alien cadavers or in the analysis of tissue samples from extraterrestrials. So, you know, these are his claims. So he actually has documentation supporting that. But yet people will criticise him because they say, well, he's provided no evidence of of these kind of like... um, alien autopsies or these kind of like tissue extraction programs that were happening at Kirtland. He's provided zero evidence. So why should we believe him? Well, you know, again, you put the cart before the horse. The the guy did work for the Air Force. He was a a, a medical first, a surgical first assist. I think that was the the job title he had. And um, he was trained to do something along the lines of what he claims, which is to conduct kind of tissue uh, extraction and analysis, you know, various part, uh, part, you know, physical parts of alien cadavers or physical uh, bodies that were recovered uh, that were part of an Air Force um, or corporate space program uh, that was set up to kind of look at aliens who had uh, died and mm-hmm. so this is what he said he was doing so you know there is his background does substantiate a lot of his claims but he you know he doesn't have any documentation to prove that he worked in a corporate run uh, alien surgical um, program stationed out of Kirtland Air Force Base because you know that is very highly classified material and he, and he doesn't have to prove it I mean that's not his that's not his responsibility. All he can do, and he does very well, is to provide his first-hand knowledge, his eyewitness testimony of what he saw, provide documentation which he has done. He's provided documentation substantiating that he did work for the Air Force and that he had did did work um, uh, as as a, a surgical first assist, and um, and and that is as about as good as it can get in terms of substantiating someone's involvement in some of these classified programs uh, that people say are part of these secret space programs. This is just too cool. I am so glad that you are here and that we are having this conversation. It's something that I've just been waiting on the right person to ask the questions of, and you are him. (laughs) But we are getting ready to go to our second break. I mean, excuse me, our second hour. When we come back, I have a couple of questions. We've got some in the chat room that I've jotted down. And I'm so appreciative of you being here to share your information and knowledge relevant to these topics. It's something that as I go to events, I'm I'm taken aback really by this group of people are tight and think this and that's great. I mean, you know, you you do have your colleagues that you work better with and you like to be with. They're not open to this group of colleagues who are 
researching that have documentation for that and their methodologies are different. So near the twain shall meet, right? (laughs) It's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be a team effort if you're actually wanting to get the information that you say that you're looking for. There has to be a method in place and people who have different information and different information sources need to be able to share that in comfort, I think. When we come back, we're going to hit this stuff again. Yeah, it's the news break, ever hopeful, but man, it's been a long time since we had a little good news, right? Other than the fact that it's Mother's Day and it's been a good day for me and I hope it has for all the other moms out there too. We'll be back. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin says the worst of the nation's job losses is yet to come. NPR's Hannah Hageman has more. Just two weeks ago, Mnuchin was saying the economy would quickly rebound over the summer. However, he told Fox News Sunday, The reported numbers are probably going to get worse before they get better. The U.S. saw more than 20 million jobs lost in April, and the unemployment rate soared to nearly 15%. That rate surpasses the post-World War II record of almost 11 percent. Mnuchin also says the White House is considering additional stimulus measures, including a payroll tax cut. But he says the administration is not in favor of simply bailing out states. Hannah Hageman. NPR News. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson outlined his vision for a slow reopening of the economy this week in a TV address tonight. Johnson said people in manufacturing jobs and others who can't work from home should be actively encouraged to go to work. He says starting Wednesday, outdoor exercise limits will be canceled, but Prime Minister stressed that social distancing guidelines still have to be observed. He spent a week in the hospital receiving treatment for COVID-19. After eight weeks of confinement, France is getting ready to begin lifting its coronavirus lockdown tomorrow. It was one of Europe's hardest-hit countries. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley has more from Paris. Over the next three weeks, schools will gradually reopen, starting with pre- With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Schools and elementary schools Monday. Shops, too, will open their doors, but not bars or restaurants, which will remain closed at least into June. In Paris, 20,000 police officers will be on patrol in the city's metro system to make sure people respect social distancing measures. Dr. Eve Cohen, head of resuscitation at two big Paris hospitals, is still worried. If the French are not careful, we could face a second wave, which would be more terrible than the first, he says. Cohen says in the first wave, every patient was treated, but he fears a second wave would overwhelm Paris hospitals, which have not completely recovered. 
Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. The Pennsylvania National Guard has been deployed to assist seven long-term care facilities that are fighting COVID-19. That includes the Brighton Rehab Center that has more than 300 cases and 71 deaths. Congressman Connor Lamb has more on the Guard's duties. Some places they've done mentoring or teaching to the staff about how to deal with infectious diseases. and others, they've directly cared for the residents. It's not clear where the Guard will stay when they're helping the care centers. Meanwhile, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio plans to do more uh, to more than double the number of city workers deployed to act as social distancing ambassadors. This after an outcry over racial disparities in the city's enforcement of the policy. De Blasio says around 2,300 people will fan out across the city to help remind people to stay at least six feet apart. This is NPR. Mexican officials are warning family members not to visit their moms on this Mother's Day. As NPR's Carrie Kahn reports, it's a tough order in a country where Mother's Day is one of the most celebrated days of the year. Health officials say the next two weeks will be the peak of the coronavirus spread in Mexico, especially in and around the capital, currently the hotspot for the outbreak. Authorities are urging tighter lockdown procedures and telling families not to visit their mothers or gather for Sunday fiestas. More than 3,300 Mexicans have died from COVID, although the numbers are believed to be much higher due to very limited testing in the country. Mother's Day is the third most important shopping day in Mexico, generating last year more than two billion dollars in revenue. Officials have shut down dozens of public markets, including the largest flower market in Mexico City, hoping to discourage gatherings. Access to cemeteries have also been restricted, as well as mariachi serenades in many states. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Mexico City. Iranian state media reports the country is ready for talks on an unconditional prisoner swap with the United States. This over fears that the coronavirus could put the prisoners in both countries at risk. But government officials say the U.S. has not responded. Both countries each released one prisoner in December before the beginning of the pandemic. The Trump administration is pressing for the release of several Americans held by Iran, including Navy veteran Michael White. He was granted a medical furlough in March, but officials said he has to stay in Iran. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. You are listening to WBHM Digital Broadcasting, Birmingham, Alabama. Welcome back to WBHM Digital Broadcasting out of Birmingham, Alabama. The time is five minutes after the hour. Welcome back to the second hour of Fate Mag Radio, the online voice of Fate Magazine, and I am Kat Hobson, your host. I have to tell you that this has been, for me, a fun show already, and I have had a lot of questions, and so has our chat. So I'm very interested in all these answers that we're getting. This is something that is not necessarily my wheelhouse, but I'm having fun. And the longer I study this topic, the more in my wheelhouse it becomes. Dr. Michael Sala is internationally recognized for his knowledge in international politics, conflict resolution, and U.S. foreign policy. He actually is pretty astounding if you consider the different places that he has gone to work. And it just, it's beautiful that he goes out and does that. He's worked and done field work in ethnic conflicts involving East Timor, Kosovo, Macedonia, and Sri Lanka. I think that that's pretty astounding. What else I think is astounding is that he is a pioneer 
and the development of exopolitics, the study of the main actors, institutions, and political processes associated with extraterrestrial life. I am, I find that very neat. And we have been discussing the different types of disclosure, Michael, that people are looking for. And we were discussing people who are coming forward with firsthand knowledge and experience who are being kind of ridiculed and tossed aside by people that want to say that, you know, there's no proof of what they say and their testimony is considered proof. So we have to find a way for these guys to be able to not be victimized by people who are actually looking for the same thing and actually looking for what they're offering. What, what has been happening is that uh, people who do expect whistleblowers or insiders to provide hard evidence substantiating uh, their stories, what they're overlooking is that these people give us an insight into this very classified world of special access programs. Uh, Some of these are unacknowledged, and so basically that means that even members of Congress are not briefed on what is happening in these programs. So you have people, whistleblowers, talking about these programs, giving us insights, and, and, and they're expected to provide evidence on a special access program that is part of a compartmentalized program that uh, is illegal to disclose. Uh, so while some of these whistleblowers are encouraged to come forward, uh, by the military, uh, you know, one good example is uh, William Tompkins, who uh, did work for the U.S. Navy and has worked for major aerospace uh, corporations. He was actually encouraged to come forward uh, by a Navy admiral uh, to talk about his experiences um, in these uh, in these uh, programs, and uh, he has revealed a lot of the circumstances uh, and a lot of the details of these programs that he was involved in. And and incidentally, uh, the second volume of his uh, memoirs was just released on April 30. So we were talking about just, uh, you know, less than two weeks ago. And I was, I'm very fortunate to have played a role in that. I was one of the, I was part of the editorial team for that, and so for those that read the first volume, uh, they'll find that this volume has um, is a much easier read. And uh, yeah, he is someone that has provided a lot of details and gives us the, the kind of big picture of what's going on. And and while I think it's perfectly acceptable for people to ask for documentary evidence and hard evidence supporting. You know their claims. I think that's perfectly acceptable. I think that when such documentation or hard evidence can't be provided, that doesn't mean the whistleblower or the insider's evidence or, or testimony should be dismissed. That's the major mistake that a lot of my colleagues make. They demand hard, hard evidence or documentation, and when it's not forthcoming, they dismiss the insider's testimony and that's a big mistake because what you do is two things you know one you you dishonor um uh, the the person who often takes comes forward um at great risk to reveal 
what they were involved in. You know, you you dishonour them uh, and and what they have done because it is a very courageous act to be a whistleblower. And the second big mistake is that you're ignoring information about a secret world of rever- study, development, reverse engineering, and deployment of these uh, secret space programs uh, that were all based on recovered extraterrestrial technologies, sometimes with the assistance of extraterrestrials themselves. I mean, this is incredible when you look at the the scope of what's been going on. And these insiders give us, you know, their perspective on what's going on. And so to dismiss all that just because that whistleblower insider doesn't provide documentation or hard evidence to your satisfaction, I, I think is really, um, you know, dishonouring the whistleblower and, and really um, is... It's is, is kind of like not seeing the, the forest for the trees. I would agree with that. I hope that we find a method for people to come together with this because it's really important. It should be all on the same team, seeking the same answers. But that's just me. Now, I told you that we had some questions, and I have one in particular that I would like to, to ask you. It is about, we were talking about reverse engineered craft and how yeah, you know, we're told that, for an example, we're told that the triangles, the big black triangles are ours, right? But I know and have spoken with several very credible people who have been taken by them and some of them hurt badly, damaged. Why on earth, if that were our craft, would people be being taken aboard them and injured? Right. Well, you know, that's a very complex issue right there, Kat. I mean, uh, because... People are taken on board some of these craft, um, uh, and sometimes what what's happening is that there's an overlay of an extraterrestrial abduction with a military abduction. And what typically happens is that extraterrestrials might take someone, you know, whether it's voluntary or involuntary, they will take someone, and something happens on their craft. Um, often there is some sort of genetic kind of like uh, manipulation or experimentation that is occurring and the people are put back in their homes and then they're re-abducted by uh, a military program that is trying to ascertain exactly what the extraterrestrials are doing. And so, you know, often because of this kind of like abduction and re-abduction phenomenon, uh, you know, people are very confused as to exactly what's going on, you know, because uh, the extraterrestrials will kind of like um, put in screen memories or remove the memory, um, and then you actually have uh, the, the kind of military reabductions doing something similar, but using cruder kind of like medical technologies to remove memories you know, through chemical chemicals injected into the body and so forth and kind of trauma-based mind control. So it, it is very confusing, very invasive and very uh, traumatic for people that are caught up in this cycle of extraterrestrial and military abduction. And, you know, and But that has been going on for a long time. And uh, the, the craft... Uh, you know, they have different configurations. Some of these craft are flying saucer crafts. Some of them are triangle-shaped crafts. So, yeah, there, there are different types of craft, and the, and the triangle craft 
uh, they they have been reverse engineered uh, from these early alien technologies that were recovered. Okay, well, I was just curious because I know a person who was abducted with a friend while camping by a triangle, by the crew of a triangle. And when he woke up, he didn't have memory of it, but his friend did because his friend was extraordinarily traumatized. So that was all on the same night. Would would the military intervene that quickly? How would they Uh, know? Well, you know, that's a really interesting is, you know, how, how does the military know uh, when abductions happen through some kind of extraterrestrial intervention. And um, what I know is that it's, it's pretty, I mean, not quite instantaneous, but essentially what happens when extraterrestrials come into our atmosphere, um, it's, it's not like we think it often as like a, a kind of linear journey where they travel from, you know, say the moons of Saturn and they travel into the upper atmosphere of Earth and it's a kind of linear thing. Uh, what what happens is that they typically um, manifest in our space-time. Um, and, and what happens is that when you actually have extraterrestrials moving through space-time, uh, what, what occurs is that there's some energy pulse that is generated. There's a kind of energy signature which can be identified through uh, this kind of like global satellite system that has been set up by the U.S. military. So they can, uh, using their uh, geosatellite system, monitor extraterrestrials uh, appearing in our space-time anywhere around the planet and pretty quickly triangulate on where that is happening. And so if someone is abducted, they pretty quickly know about it. And so they can send a craft there and so in the case of your friend i'm not sure if that was um a, a reabduction, but it, it could well have been where you actually have this kind of overlay of first an extraterrestrial contact being made and then there's a military abduction occurring pretty closely after that because they because the military wants to know you know why did the extraterrestrials take you you know what is it about you that they're interested in and what what kind of qualities uh do you have that may be of uh use to the extraterrestrials we want to know about that so you know those are legitimate national security kind of issues and uh and so but that's what's been going on for for decades now i just found that experience to be alarming because i have always i've not always i have been told that the triangles are ours, that we have re-engineered or back-engineered, reverse-engineered to get to them, and we take them on a trial run. I also have been told by people who have got vast knowledge in this field that they were they were investigating a sighting and were in a field, a massive triangle came up, and every person in that field ran. There was no, I think we should get out of here, whatever. It was primal fear and every one of them, none of them known for fear. So it was just interesting to me. And I, I did want to know a little bit about that. Well, darn, we're at our first break. We will be right back. Thank y'all for being here and y'all come back. You're listening to WBHM Digital Broadcasting, the best in paranormal talk, only on Paranormal Experience Radio, broadcasting live out of Birmingham, Alabama.
several U.S. presidents are on record talking about the UFO mystery. Yep. Presidents Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, both had UFO sightings of their own, but the current presidential campaign might be the first in which UFO disclosure has been championed by a major party candidate. DIA, CIA, it moves around, is operating a program to train psychic spies to spy and use their powers against Russia. John Ronson writes about this in The Men Who Stare at Goats. The first known sighting of a ghost took place right after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated uh, in the late 1860s during the administration of Ulysses Grant. Project Paperclip, Clinton releases it all in 1998. Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I say to you, still think it's a meteor, Professor. I don't know what to think. The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. It's a place where UFO hunters and scientists gather to examine paranormal activity in the region. Some of the documents, this is bringing Nazi scientists into the United States to work here. So we fought against the Nazis, and it's not, this again is not a revelation. As early as 1947, 1946, we knew some of this, right? On the paranormal, will we see U.S. President Barack Obama's foreign policy go intergalactic in a quest for gold stolen by aliens. We'll tell you at least how the White House responded to claims the chief executive has been teleporting to Mars. But let's get to today's Capital Account. UFOs. Hauntings. Psychic abilities. Conspiracy. ESP. Cryptozoology. There are many things that remain unexplained in the inexplicable world around us. And we're talking about them here, looking for answers on WBHM Digital Broadcasting, Birmingham, Alabama. The truth is out there. Thank you for listening to WBHM Digital Broadcasting out of Birmingham, Alabama. The time is 23 minutes after the hour. Welcome back to Fate Mag Radio, the online voice of Fate Magazine. And I'm Kat, and we are back with Michael Sala. And Michael, thank you so much for being so informative and willing to answer all these questions. That's just fantastic, and I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Kat. Now, we have two questions in chat, and I want to go ahead and get to those, if that's okay with you. Thank you. One is, do you ever get to analyze people's pictures of UFOs? And if so, have how many have actually made you think, whoa, that's definitely a UFO? Because I'm sure with what you do, that people probably are always showing you and telling you their experiences. Right, that's a very, uh, very interesting. A lot of people have great UFO photos. Um, that is something that I, I have looked at a, l- a little in terms of like analysis of some of the photos that are that I said. I'm, I'm not an image analyst, uh, so what I tend to do is focus on photos provided by people who have uh, direct experience. With uh, you know whether it's an extraterrestrial 
uh, entity or whether it's with a secret space program and uh, who have uh, some kind of evidence in terms of photos of the, of the crafts. So there, there have been some photos given to me by a person based out of Florida who has both uh, been taken on, uh, who has been taken by uh, a military space program and has also been aboard an extraterrestrial spacecraft. And so he's talked about his experiences and was fortunate to take photos of the craft as they were leaving. So that's kind of like pretty rare to have a, an experiencer who has photos of the craft as they're leaving. And, and sometimes they're, you know he has photos of the craft uh, before his experience, but typically he he's taken the photos uh, later. So that's that's very helpful. But in, but in terms of you know, there's a lot of people that send me their uh, UFO uh, images, and uh, some of them are very very impressive. But I, I, I tend to focus on kind of whistleblower and insider testimonies uh, because that's what I feel. I have the most expertise in you know because professionally that's what I've been doing. Uh, since the early 1990s, uh, b- before I began working in this field of um, uh, UFO disclosure, I, I was traveling to different countries um, and talking to witnesses and people talking about human rights abuses. Uh, and so I got to interview people. And so that's always been uh, my focus is like people's stories you know, what did they see? What did they experience? And, and kind of like analyze that and, and and put that out in some systematic way. Um, and so I continue to do that. But, but nevertheless, I, I, I still, when there is uh, some kind of photographs or video that substor- substantiates that eyewitness testimony, then, yeah, I'm very happy to look at it. Well, I think that would be fun. When I was at Contact in the Desert, this woman had tons of imagery of craft that she said came up over the hill behind her house. She lived in San Diego, the San Diego area. And I was like, we never get that where I live. (laughs) That's pretty fun. But her other question here is, do you think all aliens look alike or similar, or do you think that they're able to take on different forms, I guess, like shape, shape shifting? Well, I do know that, uh, extraterrestrials uh, have very different uh, physiologies. And so, um, you know, they, they, they kind of like cross the spectrum in terms of uh, how they look and even things like height. Um, I know that uh, uh, w- one of the earliest references I had to the different category or the different number of extraterrestrial races visiting us was uh, – uh, Clifford Stone, who is a very credible insider, whistleblower, served for 22 years in the uh, U.S. Army. And uh, he says that uh, he was was involved in these crash retrieval operations. And uh, he says that very early on, back in 1989, 1979, that's right, 1979, that he says that he was given a medical manual uh, for rendering first aid to extraterrestrials uh, that may be found in some of these crashed uh, flying saucer incidents because he was part of the uh, the first responder team that was sent by 
this classified program to UFO crashes. And he says the this medical manual basically provided uh, details on how to respond medically to 57 different types of extraterrestrials. Holy um, wow. And then we, that's right. That's right. So that was back in uh, 1979. He said that that he he was given that uh, that medical manual for the first time, and and so that kind of gives us an idea. Well, that that's like 40 years ago, and and so now uh, people, uh, Emery Smith, uh, Corey Good, and others talk about uh, you know about a hundred. Hundred different extraterrestrial civilizations visiting us or being involved in uh, Earth's kind of like uh, history, and um, you know they vary from human-looking to insectoid-looking or reptilian-looking. Um, some of them uh, I, can be very, very large, as, as large as like fifty feet tall. Others can be wow. uh, six inches tall. So, yeah, you, you have many different types of extraterrestrials. But one thing that um, is, is a characteristic of all of these different uh, physio- physiologies of these extraterrestrials is that they are all intelligent species able to, to develop and deploy advanced aerospace technologies from different star systems. So they are highly intelligent and very advanced. That is astounding. That's it sounds like someone who knew that worked on Men in Black when they go into the, the little inner chamber and there's all these different aliens in there when they're trying to get off the planet. I am just, that's so weird that that was something that was included in that film. Well, that, that's really interesting you say that, Kat, because, uh, I mean, I, when I first saw uh, Men in Black, I thought that this was a case of soft disclosure, that this is Hollywood uh, putting out information in a kind of like a, a satirical, uh, mm-hmm. comedic time type of form to kind of like present the truth, put it out into the public, but in a way that could be easily dismissed and ridiculed, but that there was actually uh, – that this was based on kind of real-life events. And one of the things that I, I found fascinating was that uh, I think it was around 2010 – uh, the uh, the pr- the prime minister of Russia, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, he put out he. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. He actually was caught on a hot mic incident actually saying that the men in black was was actually pretty close to the truth. That there was, in fact, um, an international agency set up to monitor extraterrestrials living amongst us. So he was saying uh, that um, the men in black was based on facts. So this is the prime minister and former president of Russia saying this back around Amazing. 2012. Well, I I knew that the end where yeah, we're just one of many universes. I feel that's true. 
I live in the Bible Belt, and that's not always a popular opinion. <laughs> but, but there's a great big world out there, and there's a humongous world out there off planet. It would be very presumptuous of us to think that we're the only creatures here or there out there it's just but I did when you said that that was the first thing that came to mind was when he had the ball and zip 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 zips everywhere and there were all the aliens trying to get off off planet so there were all those species that's so cool I am I am so fascinated by this whole conversation but we've got a part that I definitely want to get to before the show is over but before we get there you had mentioned Daniel Sherwin in the break Yes, he was. Uh, uh, he worked for the U.S. Air Force for twelve years. He was uh, um, involved in uh, uh, communications uh, uh, for the Air Force, and he was assigned to the NSA uh, for a secret space for a uh, a very highly classified program. So what he described was that after he was trained um, in. Uh, Air Force uh, advanced communications uh, with their most sophisticated electronic uh, equipment, he says that he was also trained uh, to do something uh, that was part of uh, a highly classified compartmentalized program uh, at the NSA. And what he then discovered was that this involved communicating with extraterrestrials. And basically what he discovered was that uh, that the NSA or the, his handlers within the NSA were basically monitoring uh, these communications from these uh, grey extraterrestrials giving data on the abductions that they were conducting around the world. And Sherman basically said that he realised that agreements had been reached between the US military um, with these grey-looking extraterrestrials in terms of people being abducted and having genetic experiments conducted on them and that part of the condition uh, for these agreements was that uh, these abductions would be reported to the NSA who would then kind of relay it on to whatever government entities were, were trying to monitor all of this. That's astounding. Was that? Did you take from that that the agreement was simply a U.S. ET agreement? What it showed, yeah. What it, what it showed to me was that agreements had been reached with uh, extraterrestrials, yes, uh, with uh, the uh, different presidential administrations, and uh, and and in my research, I've been able to trace this down to the Eisenhower administration, mm -hmm. where there were meetings. Uh, and diplomacy conducted by President Eisenhower and his administration with different groups of extraterrestrials, and eventually agreements were reached. And uh, the, you know, the agreements basically allowed for uh, technology to be shared by the extraterrestrials, who obviously had very advanced technology that the U.S. military was very interested in. And in exchange, uh, the extraterrestrials were given rights to establish bases on the earth and to conduct uh, a limited number of uh, genetic experiments involving humans um, and that uh, this information would be relayed on uh, to the U.S. military. So uh, definitely these agreements were reached in the 1950s and continue to the present day. I find that alarming. 
And I had, I was aware that there were supposed to be documents relevant to that. I think that I think that if I were one of the people being abducted and I found out that my government said, "Oh yeah, this is fine. We're give us this many and we'll do that." And I would be upset. I'm upset for them. It, it is. Right. It is it's definitely very upsetting because, you know, people assume that, you know, one of the primary responsibilities of the of the government and the military is to ensure the security of their citizens and and to realize that uh, agreements have been reached where you know, a whole category of, of citizens uh, could be uh, abducted and and their rights violated systematically and all of this was reported to the military and no action was taken uh, yeah that that is definitely very upsetting well angering almost I just find the whole concept of trading parts of the human populace for technology wrong. And I know that there's going to be arguments for greater good and whatever other justifications, but it just seems wrong. Well, exactly. I agree. But I mean, we need to keep in mind from the military perspective, I mean, they're they're thinking very much in utilitarian terms. Um, and they're thinking, well, um, you know, what what is what's going to benefit national security? Uh, uh, if we kind of like uh, give these aliens permission to do this, we're going to get advanced technologies that are going to help us to protect uh, the rest of America's uh, citizenry. And while we might uh, sacrifice the rights of a limited number of Americans. Uh, the vast majority of Americans are going to benefit because we're going to develop uh, advanced space programs where we can uh, maintain the American way of life for decades to come rather than saying on principal grounds no and, and our enemies, we know, will, will, will agree to this. And this is where, you know, you look at countries like, um, like the former Soviet Union and uh, present-day China, and um, and I think the U.S. military would say, well, if we say no, uh, the the Russians and the Chinese are going to say yes, and they're going to get an advantage of uh, over us. And at the end of the day, they're going to have more advanced technologies than us. So, so, so let's you know let's agree to this on utilitarian grounds. Well, that's fine, but I would say your family first. <laughs> Unfortunately, that. Unfortunately, that did actually happen. A lot of the the military did uh, allow their families to become involved in this, um, and, and you know there were reasons for that. Um, there was a a really good a kind of uh, series that was uh, the executive producers were uh, was St- uh, Steven Spielberg was part of the uh, a, a, the producers of that of this series. I think it was called Abducted. Um, I think it was about three seasons, and uh, and, and in fact, it, it did involve. It was a multi generational thing where it was the families of military personnel that were often involved in these abductions because this was the way in which the military could keep control of that. That you know, people that were being abducted, that they would um, uh, recruit their children into these programs, and that would enable them to kind of monitor this more closely. Well, you know, I have always heard that abduction experiences seem to be familial within that group. So perhaps I had always wondered about that. Well, we are about a minute away from our last break. 
and I wanted to get into your new book. When we come back, we're going to talk about China and the situations that are going on, space issues that, you know, they seem to be advancing quite a bit all of a sudden. Yeah, they put a station up on the moon, on the backside of the moon, ostensibly. I want to hear what you have to say about that. That cool with you? Sure, I'm looking forward to that. All right, well, we will be right back. Thank you all for listening, and we'll catch you on the flip side. You're listening to WBHM Digital Broadcasting, the best in paranormal talk, only on Paranormal Experience Radio, broadcasting live out of Birmingham, Alabama. Come on, I'm Southern, but... Um, nope. That'll do. Hello, I am Kat Hobson, host of Paranormal Experience here on WBHN Digital Broadcasting out of Birmingham, Alabama. I enjoy having guests from all areas of the paranormal, from ghosts to ufology to cryptids and beyond. You'll find some of the best researchers in their fields bringing you some great information. Join me on Wednesday nights from 8 to 10 p. Eastern here on WBHM Digital Broadcasting. Since 1948, Fate Magazine has brought you reports of the strange and unknown, all of them true. Fate Radio is carrying on that tradition, bringing you the unusual, macabre, strange, and bizarre. Join host Cat Hops Sunday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on WBHM Digital Broadcasting. Listening to WBHM Digital Broadcasting, the best in paranormal talk, only on Paranormal Experienced Radio, broadcasting live out of Birmingham, Alabama. Thank you for listening to WBHM Digital Broadcasting out of Birmingham, Alabama. The time is 45 minutes after the hour. Welcome back to the final segment of Fate Mag Radio. I am so glad that you're here and I hope that you have enjoyed all of this information because, you know, I'm going to have to go after the show and process this. This has been fascinating. Michael, I am just so appreciative of you being here and being so open and sharing the information with us. But your new book, Rise of the Red Dragon, Origins and Threat of China's Secret Space Program. I cannot wait to get through it because they have really been stepping their game up. And now with what's going on in the world today, there is other stuff too that's probably all part of the same program. What can you tell us about that? Well, I think the important thing to keep in mind is that uh, China's economy has enabled it to put a lot of resources into its military uh, plans for colonizing outer space. And the and China's military, the People Liberations Army, is, is well aware that the United States has developed a secret space program. They know about the electromagnetically propelled spacecraft that were reverse engineered from recovered extraterrestrial craft 
um, in the 1940s and so forth. And the reason they know this is because a, a Chinese scientist was involved in the very first reverse engineering programs that had been set up in the United States. His name was Dr. Shen Su Shen, and he was a rocket pioneer uh, that was based out of uh, Caltech and JPL in the uh, early uh, late 1930s and early 1940s, and he was actually part of the initial um, scientific advisory group that was set up to study the recovered spacecraft and flying saucers uh, that had been brought over from Germany and that had been that had actually been um, recovered from New Mexico. That this Chinese scientist was actually part of Operation Lusty, which was the uh, uh, U.S. Army Air Force's scientific mm -hmm. team, a recovery team that was sent to Nazi Germany to inquire and find out about their flying saucer program. So this guy was a part of that. He was part of the uh, scientific advisory board that analyzed the retrieved Roswell craft, and he was part of the group that set up the first blueprints for the U.S. Army Air Force to set up a reverse engineering program to develop their own future secret space program. So this Chinese scientist brought all that information with him to China in 1955 when he was expelled from the United States in a really bizarre set of circumstances. So he helped set up China's secret space program. Um, and today, because China's economy has, uh, has just grown so quickly, so fast, China is putting enormous resources into each secret space program because China understands that whoever controls the strategic high ground in any future military conflict is going to win. And China recognizes that the strategic high ground is space. So whoever has the greatest number of satellites and anti-satellite systems and kind of Earth orbital weapon systems and also is able to deploy... Uh, technologies on the moon um, and in uh, and in orbit around uh, the moon, they are, are going to be the ones that is going to be in control of the strategic high ground. So when the United States and China eventually kind of butt heads in terms of who's going to be in control of space, China is setting up its space infrastructure so that it can win that conflict. And, and China uh, well understands that because the United States has, has diffused its military resources um, in this kind of full-spectrum uh, response to what's happening around the world, whereas China is focusing um, on these space technologies, that China is going to develop an asymmetric advantage in space. And that is, this is what is really freaking out a lot of uh, U.S. national security planners because they know this. And this is one of the reasons why uh, the Trump administration has accelerated the development of Space Force because the U.S. military knows that China is pumping all its, all its resources into developing squadrons of uh, anti-gravity, electromagnetic-propelled spacecraft in space, they're developing space destroyers, space cruisers, whereas the U.S. 
um, has only been kind of like developing uh, a small number of squadrons that are fairly old. And so the U.S. military understands if they don't change their approach very soon, by 2030, uh, the U.S. might have five squadrons of advanced electromagnetic anti-gravity craft in space, whereas China has 20 or 50 squadrons. And so they understand what the consequences are going to be. So this is why Space Force is being accelerated. And yet so many people mocked him when he said that. That sounds like it's something that was actually needed. Totally, totally. I mean, uh, uh, this current administration under President Trump is very responsive to the needs of the U.S. military. And Trump's advisors have been telling him that, you know, there's this whole kind of like political focus on Russia is just nonsense from a national security perspective, that from a national security perspective, Russia is not a threat at all. China is the threat. China's economy makes them, uh, for the next several decades, uh, the United States' preeminent threat, uh, not only around the planet, but in space. And the U.S. Uh, military has been saying that we need to get more and more resources in space and you need to have a space force set up so that we can start getting the public to support what we're doing because you know once the public realizes the full spectrum of what china is doing in space you know what china is doing in terms of developing its resources uh for uh countering america's satellite uh, networks, uh, basically developing uh, resource extraction on the moon and eventually developing um, colonies on Mars. These are all part of what China plans to do. And they're putting a lot of resources into this because they have an asymmetric military strategy. They call it assassin's mace. And that is how you undercut a a, a dominant hegemon uh, such as the United States is you go for their Achilles heel and and the Achilles heel of the US military is that they are not putting nearly enough resources into space compared to China whereas China is concentrating on space so that is why the China is not trying to kind of like match the United States in terms of aircraft carriers strategic bombers uh, or ICBM kind of delivery systems, China's putting all its those resources into space, whereas the U.S. is wasting a lot of resources on ICBMs and kind of like um, air, strategic aircraft bombers, uh, which really uh, is a waste because the next uh, battlefield is not going to be in, in terms of kind of like the oceans or like uh, kind of like these ballistic missile systems being launched uh, by bombers, it's going to be in space in terms of who takes out the other person's or the other side's satellite network system first and who has strategic, the strategic high ground of bases on the moon from which they can launch uh, weapon systems. Well, that's um, not alarming at all, <laughs> considering that our previous administration defended NASA and I'm not sure what all else relevant to these things because I know there's been a lot of of catch-up being played as far as development of resources by the U.S. So I am just curious, do you know what they put 
on the dark side of the moon? Well, well, China uh, has sent a, a probe uh, to the moon and and has landed uh, a lander and a rover on the on the far side of the moon, um, and and that is because they are trying to catch up to what the U.S. Uh, knows of what's happening on the far side of the moon and and, and what the Chinese are are quickly learning is that the far side of the moon um, has a number of different, uh, has multiple bases. Uh, Some of them are extraterrestrial bases. Some of them are bases belonging to secret space programs. So the Chinese are learning about this and and developing their own uh, extraterrestrial alliances uh, so the Chinese are establishing a presence on the moon uh, because the only way you can establish a presence on the moon is to forge a, uh, an agreement with uh, one or more extraterrestrial civilizations and to be given access. And so that's what the Chinese have done. And so they have access to the moon and they are now uh, wanting to uh, establish more of a presence on the moon and eventually they want to do the same on Mars and and do the same on some of the asteroids um, that are part of the asteroid belt. Just astounding. It sounds like a sci-fi movie come to life, doesn't it? It, it does, uh, but, you know, we need to keep in mind that uh, it, it's been uh, nearly 80 years. I mean, we're talking 73 years since the Roswell craft crashed. Yes. And I think most people would accept that, yeah, okay, they, they, they did retrieve the craft. So that's more than 70 years of studying and reverse engineering alien technologies. And so do you think in 70 years that they haven't learned how to reverse engineer and build their own craft and they've been deploying these and have been establishing a presence in space and on the moon and on Mars and on the asteroid belt and beyond? Of course they Absolutely. have. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it would be foolish to doubt it because especially Americans, but I think humans by nature are wanderers and explorers and they they seek different frontiers. And to be really corny and coin a phrase, you know, space is the final frontier. Actually, I think our oceans are because we know more about space than those. But I think that there's stuff underwater too. So I think we're forging ahead and all all the frontiers. Well, that's interesting because uh, some of these uh, anti-gravity craft that have been built um, are also capable of uh, traveling underwater, and they're, they're hybrid craft. So some of the uh, there are some patents that have been recently released by a Navy scientist that talks about these hybrid aerospace underwater craft that can travel uh, under the water at 500 miles an hour and into outer space at like. Uh, um, you know, 24,000 miles an hour. That's interesting. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of these um, craft uh, that this belong to the secret space program, uh, you know, they're, they're both able to explore what's happening in outer space, but also under the oceans, definitely. I, I just think that it's so amazing. And Sherry in chat is saying that she's having a hard time hearing right now how the U.S. is wasting millions of dollars on this. This is not a waste. This is a defense mechanism. People are having financial difficulties because of this virus. Totally. But for that, you need to look at the source of that virus. That's not a U.S. generated virus. So Mm -hmm. we are trying to 
keep up so that we're not, I would guess, so that we're not annihilated or assimilated. Right. I, I agree, Kat. And I think it's always important to say that, you know, truth is multifaceted and multilayered. But as we get closer to the truth in one area, um, it, it enables the truth to emerge in other areas. So, you know, as, the more we learn about secret space programs and reverse engineerings and, um, and, and UFOs, uh, the more in which the, the deep state, the secret government, operates uh, with things like uh, viruses and so forth, that becomes clearer as well. Well, we are at the end of the show, Michael. I can't believe it. I have had such a great time in this conversation and learned so much, but I knew I would. Thank you. You're welcome. and Thanks for giving me a, a new audience to be able to share this information. Well, you just can't get it out fast enough, I think, for what all is happening in the world right now. I think that your new book is very timely and very important. Do you want to give people your website? And I've already posted your Amazon page, so mm-hmm. you, your books are fantastic. And Well, thank you, Kate. Uh, people can just go to my uh, website, exopolitics.org. I, I, I have a, a mail subscriber list so you can get new updates and articles and I, and I and I'm very active now on Twitter and Facebook you know posting updates so people can keep track of uh, my research and the new book is called Rise of the Red Dragon and you can find it on Amazon so thank you again well thank you so much for being here i enjoyed you and for everyone listening you know i know as we saw evidence with with Sherry's response to hearing about the dollars spent on this this is not anything new this has happened so much so many times i mean you don't really think the pentagon pays twenty thousand dollars for a hammer do you no and yes independence day is my favorite movie one of them so you know there this money has been being spent for quite some time and i find it interesting that as china is trying to go big or go home with their program and trying to under, and they understand that money is the basis for being able to do these programs that the U.S. is incapacitated and our populace is in dire straits and our government is bleeding money to help with this. So bear that in mind when you start thinking about who to be frustrated with. So You know, if you don't like it, change it. Be the change you want to see in the world. Be the friend that you want to have. And we can do that. It is all about being the change you want to see. Thank y'all. Good night.